about uh, world events and all these things going on, sometimes it makes our heads swim. Like, like David, I think, would say, Lord, I don't want to exercise myself in things too difficult for me. Some of these things are really difficult to get your mind around. I mean, is this for real? What's going to happen in the world? And we know it is, but we also know we serve an amazing God. And his people never are called to fear. They're called to trust. Well, there's a very practical situation here in chapter 30 that essentially, when you really look at it, it's the, it answers the biggest question in our lives. How can we be strong and thrive despite the many problems that we face? It, it's directed where your trust is going to be. That's, that's the big question. And, you know, listen, we get enamored by, you know, the, the big and the powerful in this world. It's very easy. The famous, the beautiful, the intelligent, all those qualities, you know, that we, we tend to kind of look at and go, wow, from the outside, I'm nobody. But look at them. They've got it. They've arrived. They've got it all. But, see, God looks differently. He looks in the heart. Just as David, he chose David and David did not have the look as Eliab, the oldest son. But the Lord says, don't look on the outside. God judges the heart. God is more interested in what's in the inside. And listen, you serve a big God. And the biggest thing for us is to watch over the issues of our own heart. Where are we, where are we putting our trust? Which is really the question in this chapter that comes to Hezekiah the king. You know, it's a, it kind of reminds me too of a... We, we get so impressed with the, the powerful in this world and reminded of the, the big city slicker who drove out in the country in his nice Mercedes and he had his $3,000 uh, you know, gun that he wanted to shoot ducks with and he set himself up and the ducks were coming by and he shot a duck down and it fell on the other side of a fence and he went, he climbed the fence to retrieve it. A farmer said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And he goes, excuse me, but I just shot that duck. It's my duck. And the farmer says, I'm sorry, but it's my property. It's my duck. And the big city slicker says, listen, I'm a New York City lawyer. If you don't let me take my duck, which I shot, I will sue you for everything you've got. And the farmer says, well, we don't do things out here in the country like that. He says, we have a, we have a, we have a three-kick rule out here to settle our differences. And he goes, what do you mean three-kick rule? And he says, very simple. I kick you as hard as I can, then you kick me as hard as you can, and I kick you, and we keep going back and forth. And the first one that gives up, is the one that loses the duck. Well, the young, strong city lawyer looks at this old guy who looks barely able enough to hold himself up and thinks, I can take this guy. Oh, yeah, I'll take, I'll take that bet. So the farmer you know, says, well, I'm first. And before he could even think, you know, he just gave him a kick right in the groin. And the lawyer was bent over in pain and agony. And while he was, well, should say three kicks one side, three kicks other side, three kicks other side, three kicks. You keep going back and forth. So while he was bent over, the farmer kicks him again right in the face. And he lays him down, and now he's agonizing. And while he's writhing on the ground, the farmer comes up third time and kicks him right in the side. So the man is just beside himself in pain. And when he finally gets himself together, he says, okay, you've had your three kicks. Now it's my turn. And the farmer says, nah, I give up. You can have the duck. <laughs> The object of that story is don't mess with the country folk. You can be a smart city lawyer, but you see, there's rural wisdom. I would say for us as Christians, the world looks at the Bible and says just pretty much that. What do you know? Who are you? What do you think you know? You know nothing. The Bible means nothing. You really believe the Bible? Do you really believe the Bible, that old book? 
It doesn't apply anymore to life. You know, we've, we've gone way beyond that. Our science has told us, I mean, we've got Bill Nye, the science guy, telling us, right? If you teach your children creationism, you're abusing them because that's ignorant and foolish. We have people that mock the wisdom of the Bible right and left. It doesn't make sense to them. So it's a challenge. We kind of get pushed into a corner, even politically, more and more. The, the world is saying, listen, you Christians, you can say whatever you like. Just keep on your reservation. Stay within your little churches. Don't bring it out into the public square. Don't you feel that pressure at work, at school? Like you can talk about religion only in church. You can talk about religion only in your gatherings, but don't bring it out in the public, public square. Well, here's where I think we need to be encouraged. Psalm 146 says, don't trust in princes. Don't put your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is really no help. And yet that's exactly where we're getting thrust more and more, is to trust what the world says. Let me give you a little background of the chapter. And then we're going to unwrap some very, very, uh, actually some very familiar passages that you might remember. But in this chapter, it's fascinating. But the chapter essentially is this. We... The invasion of Jerusalem is imminent. The Assyrians have pretty much wiped everybody out. They're the powerhouse of the day. They, under Sennacherib, pretty much are controlling the world. And so here they've got a situation now in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom has already been taken captive. They're in a tough spot. And there's a lot of parallels here. Because in many ways, we in this country are a lot more vulnerable than we think. We have a lot of power and a lot of strength, but our leaders are increasingly corrupt. And I don't think our founding fathers ever imagined that 600 people or less than 600 people, if you count up Congress, the executive branch, and you count up the Supreme Court, that's less than 600 people, would basically rule over, what, close to 300 million people? The, the concentration of power was never envisioned to that degree by them. And that was their biggest fear. Their biggest fear, by the way, death by government is the most likely way to die if you add up all the deaths in the century. Because wherever man gets power, man gets corrupt. You cannot trust government. You cannot trust them. That's exactly what our founding fathers knew because they, they were steeped in the Bible the textbook that they only had in the schools was a Bible for 150 years before this nation was actually established. So it was a strong foundation, and they realized man tended to be corrupt and breaking off of England and tires, tired of, the, of the, the, the oppression from leaders that wanted to control their lives. They set up a new course, and it was an experiment in self-government. We're seeing close to the end of that experiment, I think, in many ways. But here's the thing. God is going to speak to these people who are now tested by the impending judgment of a nation who's worse than them, but God is going to use them to humble his people. And God said he was going to do that, and Hezekiah is caught in the middle of this. What is he going to do? So here's what the Lord has to say to them through Isaiah the prophet. He says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. 
That essentially, what the Lord is pointing out, their big sin, is probably the biggest sin that we commit. It's not a sin of commission, it's a sin of omission. It's what we leave out of our lives that causes us the most trouble. It's not seeking Him. It's not opening up His Word. It's not showing an emptiness and a humility and dependency upon Him in prayer. That is our problem. And it gets us into more trouble than anything else we do. It's what we don't do. It's kind of like the little boy who says to his mom, Mom, will I get in trouble for something I didn't do? And she goes, well, of course not. And he goes, good, because I didn't do my homework. <laughs> doesn't work that way. You will get into trouble for what you don't do. Mark my word on that and mark the scriptures on that. And this is what the Lord says. You, you haven't asked my advice. In not asking his advice, they did what seemed right. The only place they can go. Listen, there is no other power except for Egypt. And so they already set things up. And so this is what it says. It says, Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. And then he gives a little side note there. For his princes were at Zone, and his ambassadors came to Hanes. This was on the outskirts of Egypt. They'd already made a contract. They've already going forward to make a deal with Egypt. His ambassadors were there, set to settle the business. And the, the problem is... They were ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. You see, what they didn't understand and what was now is clear to us historically, the, the 27th dynasty of Egypt was actually very weak. They had no power. They had no strength. And here now they were sending their ambassadors to make a strike, a deal with Egypt to protect them against the Assyrians. Now the Assyrians... One time, they actually tried to make a deal with the Assyrians to protect them against Egypt. Now they're doing the reverse. The problem is they're not asking the Lord's advice. Now, his ambassadors or his leaders probably counseled Hezekiah and said, Look, Hezekiah, I know you trust the Lord, but let's be practical. These people have wiped everybody out. I mean, you've got to be thinking of your family. You've got to be thinking practically. You've got to take care of this nation. You've got to make a tough decision and, and pressure, 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 pressure to do what seems right. And so Hezekiah was acquiescing. Okay, okay, you know, go ahead, send the ambassadors, see what kind of a deal we can get. And so the Lord basically gave them uh, a, a warning about this. Now, when you jump at verse 7, just to get the picture here, it says, the Egyptians, he says, will shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab Ham Shebeth, which if we were to put that in our uh, colloquial way of saying things, it would be like, Egypt had a big hat, but no cattle. You know, they had big words, but nothing behind the words. They looked strong, but they were weak. And this actually is a reference for a mythical sea creature, which had this appearance of ter terror, but it was really, it had, no, it had no bite. There was no bite to this. And so that's what the Lord is referring to when he speaks to Egypt. He's seeing Egypt and they're looking at Egypt like, wow, they're strong. They look like they can help us. They were the weakest politically and militarily in history at that time when he thought he was going to get help from them. So now he says in verse 8, the Lord's saying to them, he says, now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, Children who will not hear the law of the Lord. Not cannot hear, but 
But the big problem is will not hear. You know, I think of my day when I started. Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own. And I, and I realized that when I start my day, that I either think that I have enough strength and wisdom to go about my affairs and think that I can handle things. And so I don't really have that, that Lord, help me, give me wisdom. You know, when I'm going through trials, it usually comes out like that. Lord, oh God, my prayers during trials are much more sincere. Lord, they might not be eloquent, but they're sincere. When I'm not under pressure, when I think I'm strong, when I think I can handle it, and it's really just an illusion because I don't know what the day is going to hold. I don't know what I'm going to face. So to go in there with a self-confidence and go into off the office and the church with the sense of, I got this covered. I can do this. It's very foolhardy. And, and listen, I see this across the nation in Christendom right now. There's not a zeal. We're filled with our own ways. We think, oh, we'll figure a way out. You know, we've, all, we've been in tough spots before. There's going to be an answer. Science will have an answer to this and that. And we'll figure out something. But you know, the fact is, our nation is under judgment. You know, nations, if you think about it, you see, God doesn't have to judge people until after they die. That's the worst time to be judged. I'd rather have the Lord discipline me before I meet him in eternity so I can square it away before. But some people are whisked off to, into eternity thinking everything's fine and they have to face judgment. But you see, the problem with nations, nations that's because people are eternal. We, God can defer judgment until after. But nations are not eternal. Nations must be judged while they still exist on this side of eternity. Even after he has dealt, and by the way, we have ruins of civilizations that we visit on vacation, right? All the time is evidence that civilizations have been judged. We go to their ruins. And if they're not judged in our historical books, when the Lord comes back, he's going to set all the nations aside. He's going to judge them there, and then they have to be judged before eternity begins because they will cease to exist after eternity. So the Lord is essentially saying, look, you know, you're a rebellious people. And this is what they went about. And boy, if this does not strike you as very familiar with what you see in Christian television, Christian you know, expressions of what religion is, this, this is uncannily familiar. He says in verse 10, Who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Now, they, obviously, they're not getting up there saying, I'm going to tell you a lie. You know, they're going to tell you something very smooth, very clever, very seemingly spiritual, but it's off. It's off. And, and that is some of the largest churches in the nation are giving people what they want to hear, but they're not speaking the truth. And it's a challenge for the church to not listen to these things, but this is what's happening and so the Lord basically says, verse 12, if he sums it up, he says, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Now, let's paint this picture so that we can kind of see the, the comparison. Because you despise this word, that is, when we hear the word despise, we tend to think of someone that, because you hate this word. Now, 
I'm sure there are many people that go about their lives who say, well, I don't really hate the Bible. I just don't think it's the Word of God. It's got, maybe it contains some of the Word of God. Maybe it's got some nice things in it. And it's wonderful if you believe it, but I don't believe it. The word despise in this, in this context, in the original word, simply means to take lightly. That is, to think of it as no account. Like, it's no big deal. I, I, I don't hold it in any esteem at all. This is what the Lord is saying. He's saying, my prophets that are speaking, you hold in no esteem, but these false prophets you hold in high esteem. You're esteeming the wrong thing. You're esteeming what's in, what looks good to the world. And so he says, because you despise this word, and you're trusting in the wrong thing, where's your trust? He says, therefore, this iniquity, this iniquity of what? Not asking his counsel, not seeking his word, holding his word in contempt. What is going to be the result? Here is the result, and this is what makes it so challenging for us to repent, and for Christians to repent, and for the world to repent. What's challenging is that life seems to go on. You, you know, you can sin, and it's not like you got struck with a lightning bolt, did you, when you sinned? No, it seemed like, wow, I, you know, maybe God doesn't care that much. Remember what happened to Samson? I call it the Samson effect. You know, he, was, he had the supernatural power from God. But what did he do? He started cheating a little bit. He was, you know, flirting around with the women. Then he's, he's, he's breaking his vow by touching the dead carcass of a lion. And he's just, he's worldly. He's carnal. He's sleeping around with the Philistine women. Then he settles up with Delilah. But bit by bit, what he didn't know is that he was vulnerable to a sudden fall. He thought it was all okay. I'm okay. It's going to work out. And I'm, I'm going to get up like before when she would do certain things with him, you know, try to tie him up with the green cords and he'd break them. And she said, you're mocking me. You're not telling me the source of your strength. And then she would, then he says, well, it's, you know, if you weave my hair in a loom. And so he we she weaves his hair when he falls asleep. And, and sure enough, you know, he breaks that and you're not being honest with me. And then, of course, he finally gets tired of it and tells her the source of his strength. And she has it set up and she cuts his hair and he goes out and says, I will go out like before when she cried, the Philistines were upon you. And yet he did not know his power was gone. And how quickly he went from the judge of Israel to a broken, blinded slave. Now just walking around in circles, the millstone like a donkey. And here's what he says to Israel. If you take lightly my word, you don't tremble before it. You don't have a sense this is God's word. Man, I, I hunger after it. If you don't have that, listen, this iniquity will be to you like a breach ready to fall, like a bulge in a high wall. Now imagine walking outside here in the church and you look up and you go, does that look like that wall's bulging out a little bit? And you go, yeah, that's been like that for years. It's going to be fine. No problem. And sure enough, it will be no problem. It'll be no problem. It'll be no problem for years and years and years. And then bang, it goes suddenly. If you want to know how a nation falls, that's how a nation falls. It's all artificially propped up. Now, I would have to say that our economy is artificially propped up right now. That we think, you know, we're, we're 14 trillion, we can't even get our mind around that kind of a debt. 
I mean, there was a time when those who stepped on the, this nation for the first time, those pilgrims, saw themselves as stepping stones for the next generation. Hey, I will lay my life down for my children. I will do whatever it takes for the future generation. I'll die, I'll, I'll serve, I'll whatever it takes. They saw themselves as stepping stones for the next generation. This generation has the bumper sticker on the back of their car saying, I'm spending my children's inheritance. It's a whole new world. And this is the kind of world we live in, and that's a big bulge, folks. And nobody has the guts to do anything about it. And even, listen, you know, I think it's obvious in our political climate right now that this present administration is about as anti-biblical as you can get. Now, whether there's going to be, it'd be different with another administration, we don't know. But we know what we got here. And you know what? As Christians, you know, people are afraid to say that from the pulpit. Look, at, look I, I think it's very simple. Someone once asked me, what do you get when you mix politics and religion? And the answer is you get politics. And it's true. Politics covers everything. But listen, politics also is a part of life. And if you want to go to the voting booth, you've got to think biblical. Otherwise, you're just going to get politics. So you have to be wise with this. But listen, this is the problem we're in in this nation. Now, he says, it'll break, and he, it, he shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. Now, once that clay jar is smashed on the ground, it's really difficult to put back together. There won't even be found, he says, among its fragments, a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now, up to this point, it's been pretty dire, pretty bleak, pretty bad news. And, and you know, maybe you came here tonight thinking, man, I'm really going through some stuff and this is making me more depressed. Look at this verse. This is awesome. This is what the Lord counsels. Hezekiah, you're rebellious. Your nation's going the wrong direction. Your ambassadors are right outside of Egypt to cut a deal. You don't realize if you despise my word, it's a bulge ready to break. And this is where he gives him counsel. And this is the counsel for us tonight to put our trust in the right thing. And this is what he says. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. There's your counsel. In returning and rest. Now, what is he saying? Pull the ambassadors back. Sit tight in Jerusalem. Now, think about it. All the cities already around Jerusalem have been taken. By the time you get to Isaiah 36, 37, you're going to see right outside uh, Jerusalem, the armies of the Assyrians are going to be established. The Rabshakeh, the spokesperson for Sennacherib, is going to basically tell them, look, all the other nations tried to trust in their gods, and look what it got them, and your god's no different. So just give up now. And that's why they went to Egypt, because there is no hope except for Egypt. But the Lord says, no, trust me in returning and rest. Now, let me ask you a question. Did, would that seem practical? In Hezekiah's day, no way. What are you kidding? We're sitting, we're going to be, they're going to lay siege, they're going to starve us out, and they're going to kill us, and they're going to rape our women, and they're going to take our children. We stand no chance. Let's give up. They'll treat us kindly. But Hezekiah says, no. We are going to return, and we're going to rest. Now, he says, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. What a picture of the gospel. See, the, the gospel is an amazing thing. It's mocked by philosophers. 
It's ridiculed by the intellectuals. It really is foolish to the lords of the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to Jews. But it's the power of God to salvation. That Jesus' death, substituted for you, can save you from your sins and give you eternal life. And listen, this is the message. And it's foolishness to many, but it's power. And this is the same kind of thing Hezekiah's got. God, God is telling him to return and rest. That's a great picture of the gospel. Nothing by anything you can do to fight your way out of this battle. You've got to trust me. That's it. And that's really what the gospel is. The gospel is saying you, you, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You better just trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that last little phrase is a little ominous. He says, but you would not. Now, he's appealing to Hezekiah's sense that he knows the battle he's got in the inside. So the prophet by the Lord is saying, look, this is my counsel, but you wouldn't do it. He says, you said, no, we'll flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee and we'll ride on swift horses. Therefore, he says, those who pursue you shall be swift. And then verse 17, he gives them what I would call the opposite blessing. Remember the blessing when they honored the Lord, he says, 1,000 will flee at the sight of one of you. Just one of you will send 1,000 of them into flight. But it's opposite. He says, 1,000 shall flee at the threat of one, and the threat of five you shall flee till you're left as a pole on the top of a mountain and a banner on a high hill. In other words, there's going to be nothing left of you. Therefore, verse 18 Mark this verse, underline this verse. This is a key verse. Therefore, verse 18 of Isaiah 30, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. Therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, there's two people waiting in this verse. The first one waiting is who? The Lord. What's he waiting for? He's waiting to be gracious unto you. Now, listen, I have discovered in my own life that the Lord is waiting on me, not so much on me because there's nothing I can really do, but he's waiting till the right moment when he knows I'm ready. Maybe I'm ready to listen or I'm ready to get it or I get it or whatever. He's waiting for me to get in that place where I'm going to trust him. And that's what he's waiting on his people. He's looking. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the face of the earth, seeking for someone whose heart is loyal to him, who will trust him. He looks. He needed a person to lead the nation during the time when everyone was doing that which was right in its own eyes and couldn't find anyone. But he found a woman who said, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you all the days of his life. And Hannah prayed that, and the Lord gave her a son, Samuel, who was the leader of the nation. He found somebody finally that says, Lord, I'll trust you. And this is what he's looking for in us. And so the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. I mean, that's his intention. God is a God of mercy and graciousness and patience. And he's waiting, just he's giving us every opportunity to trust him. And he'll be exalted that he may have mercy on you, for he is a God of justice. He is going to deal with us. And sometimes he deals with us in wisdom and sometimes in discipline. 
For the people, he says, shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem and you shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you, mark this carefully, verse 20, though the Lord gives you, and we can relate with this, the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it wherever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. What an amazing promise that when you trust in the Lord, though you have no clue what to do, he'll guide you. I'm amazed sometimes when I just got back from a trip that I didn't even think was going to happen. I, um, I'd made, three or four months ago, we made contact with Cuba. I'd been there before, and so I thought, all right, we, we're going to get this thing happening. I'd spoke to university students, and you know, it was an amazing event to have the ability to speak to the future leaders of Cuba, the gospel and apologetics and so many things. So I had another opportunity to go, but unfortunately the communication wasn't happening, and so we thought the trip was dead. Two weeks before uh, the trip was supposed to happen, I'd already had other things planned. I'd everything squeezed in. We get a call from them. Hey, we're looking forward to you coming. We're all excited. Everything's ready. I'm like, what? We didn't have airline tickets. We didn't have plans. We didn't have anything. So we were like, oh, Lord. Five times I said, I can't go. It's just crazy. I'll send somebody else. I can't go. And each time I said it, I just had no peace. And so finally, I, at the fifth time, I said, I'm, are you going to go, Pastor Lloyd? No, I'm not going to go. And I just had no rest in my spirit. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go. And as soon as I said I'm going to go, I felt a peace. So on the way there, a strange thing happened. Now, I've had strange things happen before in ministry where the Lord's encouraged me in the midst of crazy odds. I'll never forget on a Tuesday night prayer meeting when there was about 25 in the church, just a trickle of us. And we've been there for a year or so, whatever, and there's 25 in the church. And we had seven people at the prayer meeting that night in our apartment there in Old Bridge, New Jersey. And we were praying. And while we were praying, the Lord gave me, all I can say is a, a prophecy. And I know, look, how people express prophecy, if you're Pentecostal, you're going to be like, thus says the Lord, you know. Of course, I'd, I'd be tempted to say, thus says the Lloyd, because I'm not sure if it's the Lord or Lloyd, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I get this prophecy, and it's a sense that the Lord is, is going to... He, he, he said it to me this way. He said, there are going to be thousands in this church. And that was weird. But I had such a peace about it. I actually, in the middle of the prayer meeting, I said, you know, this is going to sound really weird. But I said, I feel like the Lord has just encouraged my heart that there's going to be... And I didn't have the faith to say... The Bible says, prophesy according to your faith. I didn't have the faith to say thousands. So I said, there's going to be a thousand people in this church. And we looked at each other, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, who would have, there's no way. You know, the, the, we, New Jersey is the graveyard of churches. You know, I mean, it's like spiritually dry and there's nothing happening. And who do we think we are? And, you know, at the end of the day, it was like we knew we were nothing, but we knew God was amazing. And I just had a sense he's going to do something. Well, I had a similar experience on the plane on the way to Cuba that God gave me a sense that among the people that were going to hear among those students, there would be one that God would use to be a nation changer. And I thought, are you serious, Lord? I mean, I'm thinking, is this for real? I mean, is this just me? I just had a piece about it. 
So while I was there, I'm looking around. I said, this is the one I wonder. Is this the one? And kind of looking around. I said, which one are you going to use, Lord? And I ran into this one young man that I actually think it might have been him because, man, he was on fire for the Lord. But I don't know. The end of the day is, it may seem weird. It may seem crazy. But you know what? The Lord promises. He'll give us that word. Of course, you test everything with the scriptures. If, some, if you think the Lord's giving you some word that does not fit with scriptures, then it's not. Then he basically gives them a great encouragement uh, through the rest of this that I think really stands out because ultimately the blessing comes from verse 27 through verse 33. The Lord promises them that the name of the Lord will come from afar, burning with his anger, his burden heavy, his lips full of indignation, his tongue like a devouring fire. In other words, he's going to deal with these Assyrians. And by the time we get to when they actually lay siege in Jerusalem and Hezekiah is put in that spot and he trusts the Lord and he keeps his leaders there and he doesn't let them go to Egypt and they probably all think he's nuts. But that night, the angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian army. And they went home with their tail between their legs and Sennacherib went into his temple to pray, probably trying to get a grip on what just happened to his army. And his two sons came up behind him and killed him. And that was the end of the Assyrians. And the Assyrian threat, the great world power, gone. Impossible. But it happened. Now, our nation has been in worse condition in church history. I don't know if you know that. During... 1790s, there, were, there was such a deadness spiritually and an anti-Christian spirit that prevailed because of the Renaissance in Europe that you could scarcely find a Christian willing to even speak about anything in public about God. Universities were like bastions of mockery. Drunkenness was at all-time high. It was just crazy. And then the revival came. A few were moved to pray, and God answered. And then in the, the 1850s, the first great American awakening, you have, or the second great American awakening, and then you have the Welsh revival. Our nation is only the result of revivals that have happened. And now we're in a condition where we're in real bad shape. We can't trust in princes. I don't care what politician you get in the White House. Although we still have a representative government, and I think every Christian should vote. And listen, if you don't vote, if you don't get to the poll and cast your vote as best you can from a biblical perspective, keeping in mind that probably the one main reason we're going to be judged as a nation is 54 million babies that have been butchered in the womb. We've got to be judged. God has to judge that. He's got to account for all that blood. So we can't stop judgment from coming to this nation, but we can forestall it for our children and our children's children with revival. We can't with revival, we can't do revival. All we can do is appeal to God to have mercy and bring us through this to this generation. I think a lot of Christians are seeing the prophecies and thinking, you know, now it's not going to happen. Revival is not going to happen. It's going to get worse. Well, we we don't know whether this is a birth pang. That's just bringing us to the brink. And then, like it was in the 80s, I remember it was a sense of with Russia and the nuclear weapons. It was like, we thought, man, it's it. The Lord's coming back. 1981, man, we were all anticipating New Year's Eve. This is it. 
and then things settle down. Will it be like this again and there'll be another settling? I don't know. We have a year, five years, 20 years, 50 years. Only the Lord knows. There's one thing we can't afford to not do. And that is trust in his word and seek his face. And just say, Lord, have mercy on us. And get to the polls, of course. Because I think if we don't get to the polls and we continue the course we're on, and those that get elected who have no respect for life in the womb, pressuring the church to you know, actually you know, have no protections, to stand up on the behalf of the innocents, we're going to be accountable to that. So I think our best bet is to realize the Lord is waiting for us, that he might be gracious to us. He's waiting for us to trust him. See, it's not anything of our strength or ability that can do anything, but if we trust him, ah, there's where things really begin to happen. If we don't, well, you know what? We don't know what will happen. I think of a time when Judah was facing a battle and they were tempted to hire the nation to the north to help them in battle against the Assyrians, or against the Syrians at that time. They wanted to hire godless Israel. Godless Israel was backslidden. And the prophet came to the king and says, why would you go to the godless for help? You know, but go ahead. If you want to hire them, go ahead. Do your best and see if it works out for you. I love it when God uses sarcasm. Go ahead, give that a try. If that works for you, let me know. Do your thing, see how it works for you. I think to us, our prodigals and people that we love that we're praying for, you know, we try to tell them about the Lord, but you know, sometimes the only thing that gets through is what I call the, the lesson of the pigsty. You know, the prodigal has to eat a few, a little bit of pig slop before they realize, what am I doing here? And so this king was tempted, and the prophet told him, go ahead, go ahead then, if you want to go trust them. And then the king asked an interesting question. He says, well, I've already paid them 200 talents of silver. What am I going to do? You know, I've already given them all that money. <laughs> and the prophet says, oh, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. I think, above all things, we've got to remember that, yeah, it might be costly for our jobs, for our respect in the community. What will people think of us if we tell them about Jesus? You know, will I lose my job? Will I get in trouble because I'm not politically correct? If I speak up on behalf of what's right and what is true. Right now, more and more around the world, the nation or the church is being silenced. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. But listen, the more we get pressured by the world to be a certain thing, the more we've got to remember, look, the Lord is able to give us much more than that. I don't have to worry about myself. I want to be on the side of right. And I'll never forget reading Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar was really filled with himself and his bravado and he, he built this huge image of gold which was in direct opposition of what the prophecy was. He was the head of gold, but then there was the chest and arms of silver of another nation and then the, you know, the 
the waste of bronze and then the legs of iron, all the nations that were going to come after him, he was essentially saying, no, my kingdom will never end. He made it all gold. And then he called everybody out to the plain of Dura. And as I was reading that, I thought, wow, the king Nebuchadnezzar called everybody out to the plain of Dura to worship this image. And I thought, wait a minute. No, he didn't call the people out to the plain of Dura. The Lord did. Because as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were out there, they didn't bow. And then they were brought before the king, said, you better bow, I'll give you another chance. But if you don't, you're going into the fiery furnace. And listen, we are in that place in many ways to stand strong and be a Christian in this generation. We are threatened with our jobs. We are threatened intimidated to be silent and it's it's tough to be an outspoken christian in this generation but i want to encourage you it's harder as hard as it is and as seemingly weak as you think you might be don't underestimate the power of the lord god is able to do much more than you can even imagine and my prayer is that if we just take the simple trust where we put our trust is key we believe the gospel is the power to salvation, right? And we believe souls are eternal. Where others want to make this more of a socialistic nation, why? See, socialism makes perfect sense if there is no eternity. There should be no human rights if, so, if, if there is no eternity because civilization will last much longer than the soul. Your soul, when you die, it's gone if there is no eternity. And so therefore, you are expendable for the sake of the state. That's why communism and socialistic governments are basically atheistic because they just don't believe in the afterlife so that the state is much more important and you're just a little piece of the puzzle for the state and you have no rights and you're not important because the state is important. But listen, if eternity is true and your soul is eternal, then long after everything around us turns to dust, your soul made in the image of God with eternity written on your heart, will last forever and ever and ever, long after everything else is dust. So that means the soul, the individual soul, is of infinite value in comparison to anything else in this world. But I fear many of us Christians, we, we're playing marbles with diamonds. We're tinkering around with stuff in this world, distracted by the amusements and the entertainments and the things of this life, and we're not counting the souls in front of us as eternal. In Cuba, it was really kind of an, uh, uh, the Lord gave me an illustration. I had one of their Cuban, it's a Cuban cook, the CUC, and it's basically worth the same as a dollar. But in their culture, if you're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, one, $20 is essentially a month's salary. And it's not enough to live on, so you have to figure out some other means to you know, make up for the difference. So I had, a, I had a five cook in my pocket, which represents about a week's wage. And I held it up in front of him. I says, I've got, I've got a five cook in your currency. And I said, now what if I did this? And I crumpled it up and I threw it on the ground and I stepped on it. And I picked it up and I says, now it's all dirty and gross and it's nasty. Would anybody want this? You should have seen those hands go up. 
Yeah. I said, now why would you want this? It's dirty, it's nasty, it's gross. Well, we want it because it's still worth five. I said, exactly. It does not matter. The souls that you work with, the souls that you go to school with, the souls that are your worst enemies, maybe the neighbor that can't stand you and all the people around you that you wish weren't around, they may be dirty, defiled by sin to whatever degree they are, but their soul is of infinite value. And I don't know about you, but I want to be in my, my father's business. I want to just be a, a, a soul, a, a vessel that's fit for his use to influence others to trust in him in any way that I can. Because that's all I have. Is whatever little influence I might have to encourage someone else to trust in him. And then I know that God has used me to make a difference in someone's life. And I, you know what? That's worth far more than all the money that you could ever imagine. Because that soul now, trusting the Lord, because I'm indebted to those that lived in such a way that influenced me. I'm indebted to Christians that lived in such a way that inspired me to trust in the Lord, and I pray that we would be that kind of soul too. So therefore, the Lord is waiting that he may be gracious. He's looking to speak to our hearts, to guide us, to empower us if we would look to him and believe that he is able and who can tell what he might do. Father, thank you so much for your amazing grace. Thank you for your word. I thank you for your work in this fellowship, a friendship that Karen and I have had with Joe and Heather and Lord, and though many times tested with that because of all the stuff that goes on as as we minister and the attacks that come, Lord, we're so thankful you're faithful.